Episode 39 of the Tactical Breakdown Podcast. Today we're talking search and rescue from a law enforcement perspective. Let's get into it. Welcome to the Tactical Breakdown. A podcast for law enforcement, military, and emergency response professionals. Stand by. Where we help you bridge the gap and talk training, tactics, and leadership with the best subject matter experts in the world. Here is your host, Adam Kanakin. And we're back. All right, this is episode 39 of the podcast. Welcome back. Happy to have you here. I'm really excited today. I got to interview my friend Jamie Sterling who's a fellow Canadian and former ERT search and rescue coordinator for the Ontario Provincial Police. But before we get into that interview I had with Jamie, I'm really excited to announce that the Tactical Breakdown podcast is partnering with the International Law Enforcement Training Summit, which is taking place in July of 2020. What the ILET Summit is, real simply, is an online, completely virtual training conference for law enforcement professionals. Doesn't matter. You don't have to be exactly in law enforcement or a sworn peace officer. Uh, We have content for security, corrections, military, and first responders as well. But really, we centered around law enforcement. We have over 40 of the top instructors in the world uh, that have trained state, federal, internationally, And uh, over 75 hours of video content. The list goes on and on about how amazing this conference is. Uh, So we're going to be releasing that very, very shortly. Um, You can check that out at iletsummit.com. And uh, we're going to get back at you with some more information on that right away. But let's jump into this episode today with Mr. Jamie Sterling and talk about search and rescue. Here we go. All right, Jamie, my man. I just saw you a few days ago, but now we're talking on the phone across the country again. Uh, thanks for thanks for taking the time and coming on the show, dude. Yeah, thank you uh, very much for having me. Anytime I can talk to somebody about search and rescue, it's it's a good day, especially uh, when it involves many many people, such as your fans. I mean, we're not millions, but uh, there's definitely some diehards that are that listen to the show. So really excited because I've I've loved search and rescue. Um, I had the chance to to do some star training, and it's it's always super interesting to me because that's one of those it's one of those groups that doesn't get talked about. It's one of those trades that just doesn't get any light shone on it um, unless somebody needs you, right? It's like nobody talks about it until somebody goes missing, and they're like, "Oh shit, calling the star guys." So let's, this episode is going to be a lot. We're going to talk, we're going to get into a lot of the science behind search and rescue. So stuff that's applicable right now for search and rescue, but we're also going to talk about, I mean, kind of broad spectrum about what search and rescue is and, and why people are doing it. So um, why don't we start with, with your story? What got you into search and rescue in the first place? Actually, I think it started back in my days of uh, outdoor camping with the Boy Scouts of America and that, and uh, when I joined the OPP. In the late '80s, uh, I was approached by uh, by the team leader to to join the search and rescue squad, and uh, it sort of started from there. Uh, and 28 years later, I retired from the OPP uh, in charge of the province of Ontario. So it, it was a great transition, right from uh, a basic basic operator all the way through training, and then into uh, policymaker and uh, uh, responsible for the province. That's a long time. There's a lot of, uh, I'm sure there's been a lot of changes since, uh, from day one till now. Um, and so what, what, if you were to pick one thing that you think that's changed the most from when you started doing SAR in the eighties to doing SAR now in 2020, what's the biggest change? Well, the biggest change for sure is the technology that's, that supports, uh, search and rescue uh, missions. Uh, whether you're on the ground or whether you're in the air or, or in a boat, technology is, in my mind, has certainly been a force multiplier uh, when it comes to the resources that that are out there looking for a lost person. And uh, that that technology, I mean, it 
behind that is also the training. Training is ramped up substantially since when I first started it in the late 80s. From my understanding, for most SAR teams now, and even if you're on a, a you know a volunteer SAR team, whether it's be whether it's for your city or province, there's um, pretty extensive training that now happens, even for volunteers. It's not just anymore like a massive call out. People show up and you just start walking through the woods on a grid. It's you. There's there's a lot that goes behind it. So can we maybe just go and start right from right from day one if, if somebody is in, interested in SAR like what are, what are they looking at as far as training goes before they even get put onto a team well today you're you're right uh the uh requirements to be on search and rescue certainly have changed back in the day it used to be people that just wanted to do, do good for their community and, and help out to today in Canada we have a national standard that's been adopted by all the provinces and territories where they learn how to navigate with a map and a compass uh, from A to B at a point on the map, they're able to measure the distance out there in the field by their pace, by their foot. Uh, they're also able to navigate in the daytime just as well as in the dark time, in the darkness. Um, so the standards have certainly changed. And uh, with the training, a, a volunteer could expect to put in uh, two to three weekends until uh, they get their designation for a ground search course national designation locally in a lot of the provinces and, and territories have their own standards uh, that that are uh, meet that benchmark established by the, the national policy and uh, uh, they have additional needs for, for their their province or territory there's there's a lot that goes into a search and rescue call out there's a lot of different stages so maybe let's start with what is what is the reason why a search and rescue team would be called out in the first place? Well, it's pretty simple uh, because someone's lost and they don't know where they are and they don't, the police don't have that crystal ball to know the well-being of that person. So they call out the SAR resources and uh, search and rescue operations. Now we don't look for the person like we did in the late eighties. We look for the clues because all those clues will lead us to that person a lot faster. So now, um, the quicker we're called, the quicker we'll find that person. And I know uh, locally in Ontario, most of our searches, the bulk of them, were resolved in under four hours. And that, that certainly incredible, uh, speaks volumes to uh, a response for a million square kilometers and 40% of Canada's population. So the sooner they get there and the more resources they bring to find those clues, the quicker they'll bring that person home alive and in the best possible condition. Really interesting. When we first spoke, um, you kind of laid some stats down on me. And I was kind of shocked when you said like the very high majority of lost persons gets resolved in a very, very short period of time, which goes against kind of what I think the general populace thinks is the the general timeline for a search and rescue operation. Yeah, and um, that that just goes to how robust our system is, uh, where we're able to bring those people home safely, uh, you know, uh, 71% of them under four hours in in the province of Ontario. So so that's, uh, that's quite an accomplishment. Do you think that some of that has to do with just general knowledge of the the people being uh, that get lost, is it? Would you say the majority of is it are they would they be like outdoorsmen, hunters, those types of things, or are they? Are is it more kind of um, exclusive cases of of just people kind of wandering out in the wrong direction? Yeah, well, I mean, but back in the eighties, it certainly was the lost hunters in that. But uh, search and rescue uh, with population percentages has changed to. Uh, looking for different groups like fo- uh, folks with dementia, hikers, uh, people that are suffering from depression. Uh, we all analyze these cases differently based on their behaviors, and we're able to bring them home a lot faster. And we're learning from that. We're learning from the past. Whereas before, the only source of learning we had was the oldest guy on the team passed on his knowledge. Now we've got uh, history and statistics uh, from gathered from around the world to use to help plan our search. 
there's a lot that goes into a search and rescue operation when it comes to let's here's here's the here's the interesting thing that I want to talk about too because when we say search and rescue I know the the you know most people are sitting here listening like search and rescue okay someone's lost out in the woods you got to send the teams out you know you get the dogs out those types of things um but there's also an urban search and rescue which is a whole another ball game so I want to get into that later on let's talk though let's talk real quick let's talk the um you know the wilderness search and rescue type operations and let's talk about the science behind it like you said what goes into building out one of these operations what do what does the leadership need to know and then what do the people on the ground need to be doing absolutely well i say every search uh uh in order for it to be successful is coordinated and systematic and they will all start at the same place either the point last seen or the last known position uh resources uh uh, that will be deployed immediately for sure will be ground searchers. And we're, we're talking small amounts, you know, under, under teams of 16. Uh, canine units would be brought in. Uh, they are able to uh, 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 detect scent from, from human and also vegetative scent from the ground. Uh, so that's a good resource to have in, in conjunction with your ground searchers. You will be looking for footprints. You'll be looking for broken branches. They'll be looking for signs or hearing signs, smelling signs that the lost person's in the area. Another uh, popular uh, resource that comes, uh, should it be required, is, is aviation assets, whether it's a helicopter uh, that is able to, uh, to fly and uh, either use the pilot's uh, ability uh, to see people on the ground or uh, using FLIR, FLIR imagery as well, uh, where they're able to... Uh, through line of sight, be able to pick off different heat signatures on the ground. Something that, so we're talking that's in the first uh, probably three to four hours. And another resource that's been very popular has been the, um, has been uh, un, unmanned aerial systems, UAVs that have come in as well. Uh, they, they offer additional uh, capabilities for aviation. They're also able to pick off uh, uh, movement detection thermal detection on the ground and they are able to be deployed rapidly so those are the resources now what those what we do with those resources are a lot different than what we did uh, five years ago with them in in back uh, five years ago we never hardly used data uh, in search and rescue but now those uh, those ground searches are equipped with gps units we're able to download the uh the data from the aviation assets, where they flew, the altitude they flew, the speed that they flew. Uh, so not only are we getting uh, a picture of where they were, but we're also getting that data. And that data helps us prove maybe not where they are, but where they are not. So we're reducing our search area, even though we're not uh, maybe finding that person uh, right off the hop. So that, along with some other data that we bring into it, lost person analytics or behavior uh, with folks, uh, uh, data from uh, people like Robert Kester out of Virginia, where he studied lost person behavior. And we're able to compile those analytics to uh, help us predict where the person will be based on statistics from prior searches. Gives us a huge yeah, advantage. That's, that's super- huge advantage. Yeah, sorry to cut you off. There's that's yeah. super that's super interesting to me too is the that psychology um where you say okay, let's look at who this person is, like where where are they coming from, you know, um you know, where did they grow up? Where's the area that they're living in? What exposure have they had? Because certain people will will have certain behaviors when they get put out into in these types of situations, right? There's a lot of there's a lot of psychology behind it and there's a lot of research that's gone into that like you said. What is what are some what are some misconceptions that people have about um, reactions to being lost in the wilderness? What what do you think is one thing that, you know, that people would be surprised to hear about what people do? And then you'd be like, that doesn't make any sense. Why would you do that? Well, I think a lot a lot of people uh, believe when they're lost out there, um, they don't believe there's things out there that can hurt them or uh, uh you know, Murphy won't be around uh, to get get in their way. They think they're safe. They'll be able to walk on a trail, but they don't know uh, some of the stories, you know, whether hypothermia sets in even in the summer or in the fall, what it's like to walk across country 
in the bush without headlamps or lights or even know where you are. And there's a lot of dangers out there, whether they're creeks, waterways, uh, cliffs. Uh, they don't expect that to happen to, to their loved one or to their person in this situation where, where we in the SAR world see, see that regularly and are aware of those dangers. I mean, when we talk, obviously we talk wilderness survival. I mean, there's a lot of components that go into it, especially, I mean, we, it's, you know what, here's what I'd like to talk about, because this is really interesting from a Canadian perspective. And this is something that you and I had discussed, but Canada has almost all of the, I mean, obviously we don't have rainforests, but other than rainforests, we almost have every other type of climate and area in Canada as a whole, right? We have deserts. Yeah. We have boreal forests, we have coastline, we have Arctic tundra, you know, we have prairies and open fields, and there's all these different types of areas that we have that we now have to work and train in. And I know when I was with the forces, each one of those areas has a different type of response, or you have to do things differently in, in different climates. How much does that play a role in training for search and rescue? It plays a big role because we have to train, uh, we have to think of searcher safety uh, uh, is paramount and it it's, it's, uh, should be the focus uh, of that organization because we have to have healthy, healthy searchers out there and well prepared because we're not putting them out there in uh, gentle conditions. They're not going out on a bright sunny day. They're going out usually in, in hazardous environments, uh, whether it's snowstorms, raining, darkness extreme cold so we need to prepare our searchers for that whether it's through wilderness survival training uh, uh, training that they learn how to survive with the clothes on their back for three days uh, whether it's uh, putting them into a uh, breaking through the ice and uh, preparing themselves on what that feels like and what they need to do to get out all those things uh, go towards uh, highly trained searchers Uh, so when they're out there in the field and something happens, they can, they'll just say, Oh, we're prepared for this. It's just like a training day. And in a way they go, they don't, they don't miss a beat. It's, I mean, training is, is one of the foundations of, of operational success. So the, the better trained and the better equipped we have our searchers out there, the better chances there will be for uh, successful results. And, and that's why we are formally, when I was with the OPP, we're able to put them out in very adverse conditions. Uh, with very few incidents uh, to the actual searches themselves. Would I be correct in saying that when a call gets put out for a missing person and there's the assumption that a search is going to be conducted, that uh, the police are usually the first person on that scene? Is that right? Yeah, they should be. And in most provinces and territories, it's the police that are responsible for uh, search in uh, ground search in Canada. Now, obviously, uh, if it's an air search, a downed aircraft, then it's our our friends in the uh, Department of Defense. Uh, But we work together through partnerships to help each other. So, yeah, the reason I asked is because so if, if we have the officers and the officers are the first to show up, are there any considerations that a general patrol officer needs to make when they are the first on the scene when it comes to um, either, you know, picking up on any type of evidence or noticing certain things possible, uh, you know, directions that the person could have left in. Is there any type of special consideration that an officer needs to show up, even if they're not search and rescue qualified? Yeah, obviously they'll be looking uh, and hopefully uh, determining a direction of travel. They'll want to gather how old is the person or the young or the old, what medical conditions uh, does this person have? Is he alone or is he in a group of, of, of three or four? Do they have experience with the outdoors and do they know that area well? Uh, what's the weather like now and what was it like when they were lost in the last six hours? And what's it going to be like in the next next 12 hours? The type of equipment they have, do they know how to use the equipment that they're carrying? And uh, what's the terrain like? Are there any hazards out there that may uh, may impede our, our lost person from getting home safely? So those are all factors that come into play when an officer attends a scene and makes makes a decision on uh, whether to activate their search resources or not. 
who ultimately makes that determination when it says, okay, we actually, you know, obviously this has gone past what, you know, a handful of people can take care of. Um, what does that call out look like and what is the usual response time? Well, the call out, I mean, usually in, in the police world, it goes to a, a supervisor and that that's fairly quick. Uh, you know, it's not something that takes hours. So it'd be within, uh, you know, anywhere from within minutes to, uh, you know, 15 minutes, maybe 30 minutes to deploy those resources. Quite often now those resources, uh, the professional ones are, are deployed by uh, cell phone. So they're, they're notified uh, very quickly. And even our volunteers across the country are, are deployed by call out systems as well. So they're, they're deployed quickly. And so by the time that the officer arrives at the call and they make the de- determination that they need SAR resources, quite often those resources are being deployed within, within 15 to 30 minutes and arrival time, obviously, uh, uh, geography will dictate their arrival time. Most times, uh, uh, resources arrive fairly quickly, but within a few hours, you, you could expect to see uh, the bulk of the resources at the call. It's really interesting, too, and I know this is kind of backtracking earlier what we were saying, but you had mentioned that you know search and rescue has been standardized across Canada. Does... Canadian search and rescue have a leg up on other countries that we know of? Are we kind of ahead of the game when it comes to the search and rescue game? Or is there, I mean, is there one country in your mind right now that kind of is, you know, at the, at the forefront of both technology and capability? No, I think uh, Canada for sure is ahead of the game and we're very credible when it comes to search and rescue. We have people uh, from Canada providing uh, training around the world. And I think the standardization for sure of our rules and procedures has is, is helped guide us that way because we're, we're able to share best practices across our country and all will benefit from that versus the siloed approach we had uh, prior to this standard. Uh, and although we are a big country ge- geographically, uh, response-wise, the search and rescue community is very small. It would be uh, very normal for me to know who my counterparts are in the Department of Defense and call them by first name and and uh, and see them at regular meetings uh, throughout my uh, throughout the year. So we we benefit from that for sure. Yeah, I'm very like I'm. I wouldn't say I'm very familiar, but I'm definitely familiar with the you know the SAR techs that we have with the Canadian forces. And I mean, a lot of people don't realize that. I mean, you, you want to talk about highly trained individuals. I mean, you know, the the all the special forces guys, the SEAL teams, and the Delta guys. Um, if we're talking U.S., those are the guys that get the, uh, you know, get the uh, most of the attention. But when we talk, you know, as far as training and capabilities and qualifications go, most of the time, like you know, we talk about PJs or search and rescue technicians. I mean, these guys have crazy amounts of training, and I would assume that it's kind of goes the same for uh, police departments and organizations. When you have uh, SAR teams that are actually trained officers, there's quite a bit that goes into that training. Can we talk a bit about that? Yeah, a- absolutely. I know within within our own agency there with the OPP, uh, uh, they went through a two weeks of training, which consumed about 110 hours of uh, training day and night and uh, using compasses, maps, GPS units, SAR situations, SAR role-playing. That's just the initial to get them through, and they, they all have to, of course, pass. Then they'll go on to different specialties like uh, wilderness survival, medic training, uh, uh, search and or, uh, SAR manager training, UAV training. So there, there's many different components that are brought in together for a successful search and rescue team. And, and I know it's not different, uh, especially with our friends in the Canadian military. Uh, they're SAR techs, you know, they're, they're not only uh, pair, you know, they jump from the sky in darkness down to an unknown search area down below. They're medics, they're divers, they're ice climbers, they're rock climbers. Uh, they have all sorts of skills, very humble, very uh, true professionals. When we talk about the types of training, is there anything that you think should be 
brought into recruit training when it comes to law enforcement, when we talk about, you know, search and rescue type skills. And and this kind of leads now more into um, the, the urban search and rescue type uh, events, right? Um, because, I mean, any any officer can be called to, to something that turns into a search. So do you think that there's any level of training that should be starting to be introduced into recruit level training? Well, certainly at, at the recruit level, they and I know their their training is jammed full because of legislation, but at the recruit level, they need to understand the urgency of calling and why it's important to call right away, especially in an urban area when somebody is missing. They, uh, you just picture downtown Toronto and the thousands of people that are walking down the sidewalk at any given moment, contaminating that area and changing it forever. So it's important for them in urban areas to call as quickly as possible because they need to get on it before those clues disappear. What are the major changes when we talk, when we go from wilderness searches to urban searches? And obviously, I mean, you you can take the, the obvious examples, like, you know, aerial support um, is probably going to be less effective, right? I'm especially in a, a condensed urban area things like tracking prints and and things like or like footprints not, not fingerprints yeah. that's stupid. uh you know tracking footprints and things like that obviously becomes much much more difficult where what resources are allocated more for the urban search and how does that change when you when you transition from a wilderness search to an urban search environment well a lot of the resources believe it or not are very similar it's they're used in different applications like i look at as uh, as much as the you know millions of people that are in the gta area there's resources there like the transit systems you know our, our lost person may get on that bus and and travel further than they would in a rural area however one burst out to all of the ttc uh, drivers and buses and subways and those drivers are eyes and ears out there should that person get on on their uh, their vehicle. So it, it's a help to them as well. Uh, they have camera systems that are beneficial uh, where we don't have them in, in the rural areas. Uh, so there's a lot of benefits and, and, and some disadvantages as well, I guess, in, in an urban area. If you had to say which one is harder, which what maybe not harder, but you know, if if you get a call out, where where do you find it most difficult to to conduct searches? If maybe there's been a delay in getting the team on the ground, well, if there's been a delay, for sure, in urban area, I mean, the, I mean, minutes count, and 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 they count because the clues disappear, and you know, I'm not saying that. The lost person will die faster in an urban area than a rural. Absolutely not. But sometimes the minutes aren't as important in the rural areas because we're able to, those clues are preserved just because of the, there's not the contamination that they would experience in the uh, urban areas. However, there's, I mean, there's hazards, you know, in, in the urban areas that people don't think, you know, people think that, oh, they're in an urban area area they'll be fine they could duck into a restaurant or they could duck into a hospital you know they'll be fine but we've had people die from hypothermia in urban areas we've had lots of that go on that that you wouldn't think so um, it's just as important to get out there quickly are there any calls that you've experienced in the last 25 years of doing this are there any calls that kind of stuck with you where you were like, you know what, this is, I'm, you've obviously learned from it, but you wish it had maybe had a different outcome? Well, for me, I mean, it, it's the, the, the mission is uh, bringing, that, uh, bringing that lost person home as quickly as possible in the best possible condition. So whether we're bringing that person home, I mean, we've, we're, we've brought the bulk of them home alive. There, there's no doubt about that. And when I mean the bulk, probably around 90%. So that's, that's very uh, gratifying, but bringing them home so the family can have closure is, is certainly an important thing. And you can't shut that search down until you find that person and bring them home. That, that's gratifying when the family is, um, you know, they, they want to bring the person home. Well, one of the hallmark cases for, for me though, as, as a, um, as a search manager 
and it was coordinating the Victoria Stafford case. And that's in Woodstock, a, a young girl that was abducted. And that's where I really saw the role of data in the use of uh, documenting what we did during our search. And I, I used that data to help uh, present our, our search efforts to the court in a way that they could understand. And that data uh, was a, a big, uh, a big plus, a big trump card for, for the prosecution. That's for sure. For, for our friends in the, the U.S. that may not or around the world that don't understand that case, can you just give us a quick Coles notes about what that what happened in that incident so that they can kind of bring it all together for that? Yeah, absolutely. It was an abducted eight, eight-year-old girl, uh, abducted from school, and uh, she was go- walking home that day, and she was abducted. And 80 days later, we found Victoria. Uh, we had involved uh, approximately... 30 to 40 ground searches a day. And at the end, I was able to, after the 80 days, prove that we walked uh, 18,188 kilometers of, of ground that we covered searching for young Victoria and highlighted the different resources and what their capabilities were. And it was at that, like I said earlier, it was that time where I, I thought data was indispensable in that case. What use, like if for, for people listening to this and they're saying, okay, data, you collected data, what, what types of data did you collect and how does that help um, with, with the search and rescue and in when you're conducting future searches? Well, uh, the data that we collect, I mean, it can be uh, searcher data, data off the uh, GPS units. It can be environmental uh, data that the, what was the weather at the time. Uh, you know, not just the air, the wind, the water temps, uh, when was the moon up, when, you know, sunset, sunrise, sunset, that sort of stuff. Um, and then we're also able to paint a picture as to where we searched, how well we searched, going through that bush with the, uh, with the underbrush at, uh, you know, almost at knee level and you're looking for a respon- non-responsive person. What would be the percentage of the chance that you would have found that person uh, going through that area? So we, we calculate the probability of detection and, and then we're able to quantify on each time uh, members go through, through the bush or through an area, uh, what's the percentage would be that they would find that person using that resource. Uh, so there is, is that that's brought in, into play for data as well. Um, in the old days, it used to be, well, we searched it pretty good. Now we're able to show resource by resource, task by task, how well they searched that area, given the conditions at the time. So now it's much more than just lines on a map. It's how well we're, you know, what's the probability of detection for each one of those lines and, and what, uh, what specialty is brought into that that line on the map, you know, is it sight scan sonar looking on underneath the water? Is it the ground searches along the shoreline? All these variables come, come into play that are part of our documenting our search effort. Now, then we also bring into it, not just what the searchers have done, but what would that lost person do as well? And that's uh, basically an overlay. And uh, we look at the percentages of where our lot, given their behavior types, where would they be? what would put them in this spot so we we do a lot of scenario playing it's really interesting when we i i draw in, in my mind i keep drawing back to when we i got to take a seer course with the canadian forces and i mean we do a lot of a lot of that is like okay here's how to get seen and how to get rescued right so remaining in one location putting up you know whether it be some type of uh, ground signage um, making, you know, clear open spaces, things that draw attention from the air, right? So that rescuers can see you. Absolutely. Um, things like smoke signals and fires and, and all these types of things. Where do you think, like, I mean, it's it's really interesting because, I mean, you say like there's patterns that these these lost persons take. And it's, you look at the psychology behind it. And most people think like, well, if I'm lost, I should start moving and get to where I need to go so I can get out of here. But kind of the, the, the reverse is true in that 
to to be found the fastest, really, if you stay in the same spot, you're you're better off. Is that right? Absolutely. Stay put and uh, try and make yourself as visible as possible. Yeah, because chances are you're not going to hear that helicopter uh, flying over you until it's it's very close. So you have to have your like a, whether it's a fire going and and some boughs or something right right beside it ready to throw on. Um, staying put is certainly the best way. It keep, keeps the energy in your body so you can use it uh, to, to help you survive through the night or through the next 12 hours. Um, and, and with hunters, you know, with those people that we were just talking about, only a third of them will self-rescue. So that just tells you uh, uh, being uh, stay put is, is the best way to go. Yeah, let's let's you know what I'm really interested. Can we can we talk seer for a bit and or talk, you know, talk survivability? Um, because I mean there's gonna be a lot of people listening to this that do go out into the wilderness, whether they're hunters or they're just recreationalists or whatever it is. Um, if you end up getting lost, let's let's talk. Let's let's get let's share some information from a search and rescue perspective on if you get lost, here's how not to die. Um, or here to here's how to get found the fastest. So I mean we we know that if you get lost, there there's a priority to to life on on things that you need to be taken care of first. So let's talk priorities, and then let's talk um, how to how to get found and things that you definitely should not be doing if you get lost. So do you want to yeah. do you want to just start right uh, from scratch? Absolutely. Well, I think one of the first things uh, when you get lost or or whether it's an airplane crash or whether you know you're a hiker that's put you in an unfortunate situation, the first thing you got to do is first aid and take care of your body and uh, make sure you're, you're all patched up and, and you're able to go. Uh, that, that's the most important thing. And from there, we move on to fire uh, because from fire come good things. Uh, heat is important as well as the psychological effects of what fire does. It makes you feel warm and welcome. Uh, so it helps keep your mind off of the, the incident at hand. Um, fear is going to be something that's going to come into that, that person as well. And uh, fear is not a bad thing. It's what you do with the fear that makes a difference. So if you take that challenge on and you say, I'm going to make it through the night, then chances are you will. Uh, if you take that fear and, and you uh, let it beat you, chances are your survivability if, will be made a lot more difficult. You know, it's funny when we, I mean, it depends on where you're, where you are and where you're listening to this and what time of the year you're in. Cause I mean, the, when we talk priorities of life, um, obviously, you know, self aid comes first and then, you know, fire, shelter, water, food. Um, I mean, sometimes people have to, please don't take it like you always have to do fire first. I mean, depending on where you are, if you're, you know, if you're in the middle of Canada in the middle of winter, um, you know, shelter is probably going to come first and then, or if it's raining or something like you're, there's, there's always, uh, exceptions to the rule, but essentially fire is going to give you a lot of things in addition to the ability to signal for help. If there is going to be, um, you know, rescuers or searchers nearby as well. So from a search and rescue perspective, fire is, is always going to be important and keeping that fire, um, at, at, at a, a slow burn or at a position where it can be rekindled easily was actually one of the things that I, that we were taught was how to keep those embers going so that you always have a fire um, and, and having, you know, the ability to restart that fire very, very quickly so that you, you have that ability to signal if you need to. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Because uh, depending on where you are, uh, uh, material to keep that fire going may be very scarce so you got to plan on that as well and also the, the weather is a big factor as, as how, how big that fire needs to be too what things do you see from a rescuer rescuer perspective when you when you find someone you say why you know is there anything where you're like why did you do that but it's something that like there's a lot of people doing the same thing right whether it's like, you know, like doffing clothing or doing, you know, there's a million and one things that people could be doing, but is there any, any one or two things that stand out to you where you're always kind of like questioning people? Like, why would you do that? 
Well, well, actually, now there, there's people. The why would you do that? Are they're climbing hills? They're going away from the population to get better cell signal. Um, so, <laughs> hope, hoping for rescue sooner. I mean, uh, well, that's a good point too. Cell phones, yeah, yeah, it, it's changing their behavior patterns, especially with with the younger people for sure. Um, but some of the other other incidents, like you mentioned, uh, uh, removal of clothing, you know, paradoxal undressing and. All that stuff is very important when it comes into into play for hypothermia and for searchers to gauge um, how how bad how badly these people are off right when they reach these certain stages, and um, there's a lot of things that come into play that hopefully the searchers are well versed enough to be able to uh, to read that clue and interpret what it actually means. Um, I, I know when you talked about what are about staying put, I had a person relay a story to me. It was on uh, Lake Winnipeg in the winter. Uh, they were coming back from fishing. Their snowmobiles broke down. And so they were, they didn't know their way back to, uh, back to shore. And so they thought it was so bad. They, they thought they'd make their way. And as they were, uh, walking, um, they saw something up ahead and they thought it was the shoreline, like a dock coming up. And what it actually was, it was their snowmobiles again. They had walked in a complete circle on Lake Winnipeg, on a frozen lake. So there's lots of little stories out there that really um, reinforce some of these these lessons that we're teaching you about stay put because it's your best chance for uh, for rescue. Are there any tools, um, kind of like a survival kit that people should have with them, whether they be, I mean, there are, if you, and I mean, depending on your overall budget, I mean, these options can vary significantly, but I mean, we have things like now that people can take, you know, pen flares and, and all these different types of things with them. Is there anything that you would suggest that, you know, if somebody's listening to this and they're going to go out, it's like, you always want to plan for the worst case scenario. And if you never need it, awesome. But is there any certain materials that people should have on them at all times when they're going out into a wilderness environment? Well, there's certainly, I mean, I, I look at things that we used to pack away in our little survival kits uh, for the person. And, you know, the, the tinfoil blankets that, that help you with uh, uh, keep your heat in, keep the, keep the moisture out, keep the wind out. You know, that combined with a little bit of duct tape will certainly get you uh, uh, a ready-made windbreaker shelter. And I understand they even have little tents now that are made of that tin foil. So for very low cost, so we're talking a few bucks. Um, so and takes up very little space on your on your body. So you got to be looking at things like that, and they can be used for multiple uh, different things. So, you know whether it's a you know bug spray, it works for fire starter, works to keep the bugs off you, like all sorts of different things that you could carry that are multi multi-use uh hand sanitizer you know it could it can burn as well be able to start that with a flint so there's different low cost things out there that would be beneficial what here's here's what i want to do what we're going to do uh jamie next time you and i get together we're going to actually do a video and we're going to we're going to go through like survival kits um i think that would be fun but let's let's talk you and i what are, if you, your three, top three, if you had three things that you get to take with you, three items, and it can be anything under the sun, three items that you take with you in a survival situation. A flint, a triangular sling, probably a plastic bag. Interesting. Very interesting. <laughs> now, totally. Now, are, Go you gonna, are you going to record those? And then I'm going to have to, I'm going to have to produce results uh, when it comes time. for. <laughs> yeah, uh, what we're I'm going to give you that and we're, <laughs> we're going to go out and it's, yeah, it's a, yeah, it's a three day. Um, no, um, it's, that's, that's really interesting. So for me, when I'm, when I'm sitting there, I, I mean, fire is obviously one. Um, so for me, I always have a ferro rod. I mean, I think like you said, that's, it's, it, you have to have something that's reliable. So that's one for me, a knife. I'm always going to have some type of knife. Ideally, something you know, like that's a fixed blade that I can use for multiple things, whether it be batoning wood or you know, you know, skinning animals, all those types of things. So, a multi-purpose knife for the field, um, and then for me would be paracord. So, 
if I could oh. get a hundred, you know, even a hundred hundred feet of paracord. Absolutely, very strong. Those would be those yep. would be my three. Yeah. What's that? Yep. A uh, very very good choice, and I'm sure I'm probably going to regret the plastic bag, but we'll see what happens there. <laughs> <laughs> I get it. I get it. What? Hey, listen. And for those of you listening, like, why a plastic bag? And, and obviously, I and I, well, I don't mean to assume, but I'm assuming it's for water, right? To Absolutely. to retain water. Yeah. Uh, yeah, fun sure. fact, fun fact for those of you listening to this, um, if you want a plastic bag that you can keep in a survival kit at all times um, or something used to keep water, like a bladder, unlubricated condoms work fantastic for uh, for anything like that. You can use them to to cover wounds. You can use them to to carry things, including water. Um, they're just really, you know, they're very handy other than what their intended use is. So just a fun yeah. fact for everybody. And small. And small, yes. So, no, that's funny. I was, uh, I'm always interested. I was, I was, I mean, three is tough. When you, somebody says you get three things, you're like, shit, three. I mean, if I said five, then, okay, here, okay, we'll, we'll expand it out. You get two more things, two more things to go with you. What are you going to take? Two more? Yeah, two uh, more. I would take, um, yeah, the paracord. I would go with the paracord for sure. That was an oversight. And I would go with, some sort of folding saw, like a chainsaw. Oh, nice. Yeah. 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 Like a wire saw or. Yep. Yep. A wire saw. Like it. I like it. See, for me, I'm, I, <laughs> I'm sitting here and I'm like, I wonder what I would do. Cause for me, like, I like, I'm like, I like the camp in place option. So I'm like, I would probably take a poncho. Yeah. Um, like kind of a, like the, the U S army ranger style ponchos that can be used as a, uh, you Absolutely. can use it to, to build out a shelter, whether it's a, a, a small uh, tent or a lean-to, but you can also wear it if you need as some type of waterproof layer. Um, and then, oh, God, I'm kind of set after the four. I don't know what else I'd want. I'm thinking I would probably go with, what did I say, what did I, say I already had? I have a knife, I have paracord, I have a poncho, and I have a ferro rod. I don't know. Maybe I'll bring my Walkman or something. <laughs> iPod. <laughs> well, that's only that's only so good if you can charge it, right? Um, right, right. Yeah. <laughs> you know what? You know what? I I knew what I know what I would take for my fifth. I'd take a uh, a headlamp. Yeah, a headlamp would be very beneficial uh, because you yeah. you certainly got to work work hard and fast if you don't have a uh, a headlamp. That's for sure. Yeah. Well, that, you know what, and that, because people are probably sitting here, they're like, well, why wouldn't you take a compass? You know, it's, it's interesting when you spend enough time outside um, and there's a few tricks to, to gain your bearings without any type of compass. Um, and I'm not saying like, here's how to, ma you know, we're not talking about magnetizing needles, putting them on leaves in open water and still water and, and, you know, finding magnetic. No, we're not talking about that simple, you know, astronomy will yeah. give you a pretty good bearing on where you are. And, you know, you should never be going out somewhere without doing some type of recce of the area, whether it be a map recce or anything like that, and having an idea of major structure, like, you know, the things like mountains and hills and, and rivers, and, and you should know a general idea of where they are. And then from that, you should be able to triangulate certain direction. And then Absolutely. all else fails, the sun, you know, rises in the east and sets in the west. I'm For sure. Here. And you so know what I mean? Moon, absolutely, and that's the easiest, you know, easy easy way to determine rough direction of travel for you. That's for sure. Yeah, and if the sun's at noon and you don't know which way to go, don't move until it starts going down again. Pretty simple. Yeah, and and you know what? And two, usually, and this is for people that are farther south than we are up here in Canada. But high noon is usually the hardest hottest part of the day as well. So you should be finding shelter and resting uh, to conserve you're no energy and, and, and hydration. So lots of, lots of things. I love talking about this stuff. I love this stuff. Uh, you know that. Yeah. So it's, I think uh, it's very cool. And, uh, you know, we, we look at the tactical side They're they're the cool kids on the block. Right. Uh, but in the end, uh, we certainly do a lot of, uh, neat tricks of the trade as well on the SAR side. And, uh, we get those people to those calls. That's, that's the big thing. Yeah, absolutely. I'm excited. I think we can definitely, I see in the future, I see a, um, a, a video series 
uh, that we're going to put out on search and rescue. Um, I think that'll be super fun. Uh, wilderness survival and types of things like that. So that'll be fun to do. Um, listen, man, where, I mean, you're, you're doing some stuff on the private side as well. And I know that's why you're out here in Manitoba. Um, tell us a bit about what you have going on, uh, on the civvy side, since you've, since you've left the OPP, what do you have going on with your company when it comes to search and rescue and, and where can people find you? Yeah, well, I, I've carried on in the search and rescue business. I, uh, a company called SAR1, S-A-R hyphen number one. Uh, they can find me on the web there or on LinkedIn. I provide search and rescue training to uh, police departments or, or search organizations or government uh, bodies that want to prepare their community uh, uh, for a search and rescue event should it happen. Uh, doing a lot of work in First Nations communities, uh, helping build resiliency within, within that uh, community here in Canada. Uh, I'm very proud to be part of that. As you know, I'm an honorary third Canadian Ranger, uh, which uh, in Ontario, it's uh, 23 First Nations communities north of Thunder Bay. So I've been in, in that world for, for quite some time and uh, know the challenges that they face. So I'm always wanting to, to help out those remote communities and uh, help community members help the community. That's what it's all about at the end of the day. Um, so I've got that going on. Uh, I also have UAV Ground School, uh, where uh, we're able to, in Canada anyway, uh, bring law enforcement agencies up to uh, government Transport Canada or, or regulations uh, for for UAV ground school. So, so it's all pretty, pretty exciting stuff, a uh, new stuff where I'm uh, coming out with uh, uh, some new technology that I, I hope will revolutionize the world of SAR. We'll, we'll talk about that at a later time, but where I'm, I'm uh, using partners like the university of Waterloo uh, that, that are uh, helping with, with research and using data and analytics as well as Ryerson university in Toronto that's helping uh, UAVs uh, find people with dementia by cr the creation of an algorithm. So I'm very excited about that new stuff that's coming out. And uh, hopefully we have more for you in, in the future. Yeah, I'm excited. I mean, we got a chance to talk about it a bit offline there. And I yeah. think it's fantastic stuff that you're working on. And I'm really excited for, for if and when it does get rolled out, um, totally going to be a game changer for you. Um, and so for those of you listening to this, if you didn't catch that, if you go to sar1.ca, so that's S-A-R dash the number one dot C-A, that's where you can uh, you can find Jamie. And as well, you can go on right on to the show notes page um, for this episode. Click right on into the uh, the breakdown dot C-A episode page and everything will be there for you. Um, all of the uh, all the websites, links, and everything there. So, listen, Jamie, man, I'm so uh, I appreciate you coming on the show, and I'm so glad that we had the chance to do this. Dude, we're gonna have to do it again soon. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for asking. All right, I hope you enjoyed that conversation I had with Jamie. If you're finding this information actionable and useful, please consider subscribing to the podcast if you haven't already, and uh, make sure to add in your calendars the last week of July 2020, the International Law Enforcement Training Summit. Again, you can check that out at iletsummit.com. Or to get more information on that, you can email me directly, adam at iletsummit.com. Thanks so much for being here, and we'll catch you next time on the Tactical Breakdown. Stay safe. Produced and distributed by the Sound Off Media Company.